This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. today with a special guest, Dr. Gregory Hospidor, who was a former faculty member here at DMH and is currently the TRADOC Chief of Military History Education and Curriculum. Dr. Hospidor, welcome. Hey, thank you. So uh, among many different topics, Dr. Hospidor is an expert on the Sicily campaign in World War II, and that's a campaign that's not particularly well known, particularly uh, among people who may not uh, know much about World War II beyond kind of the big campaigns, the 1944 campaign, maybe some of the stuff in the Pacific. Um, so we'll start kind of in the, the, the biggest possible picture, Doc Hospidor. So we, we, how do we get to Sicily? What's happening in the war before the landings in Sicily in 1943? Well, in, in order to answer that, we've got to think about what's going on more broadly, at least for our opponent, I think, Germany. So Germany's fully engaged. Uh, our major opponent. Let me say this: This is a cold, World War II is a coalition fight on both sides. So uh, Germany at 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 this point in late 1942, of course, uh, they have issues, um, but they launched the uh, Kursk campaign or the Kursk assault uh, just prior to us landing in Sicily. So the war on the Eastern Front hangs in the balance. This is Germany's kind of kind of back door where they're bailing out. A tottering opponent, Italy. Now, for the United States, uh, we've just uh, executed from uh, late 1942 into May 1943 um, uh, an experiment in coalition warfare with the British, primarily, and I should more properly say probably the, the Commonwealth forces. And yes, there were French fighting there as well, our new allies. Um, and it's the, it's the first major test, at least in the European, or sorry, the Mediterranean theater of, of, of the United States, this army we built to fight in, in World War II. And uh, uh, the typical picture of what's happening relative to American involvement in, um, uh, uh, at least on this side of the Atlantic rather than the Pacific, is there's this kind of natural progression, baby steps from, from Tunisia, Oh, then we make a baby step over into, into uh, uh, the other side of the Mediterranean. We enter the European continent in Italy. And then we have, of course, the thing that uh, uh, everyone uh, enjoys, that at least enjoys World War II history, uh, Northwest Europe, and that this happened naturally. So uh, in answer to your question directly, um, the, the progress to get into Sicily is, I won't say accidental, it's evolutionary and it's contingent on political decisions made. And I think the big thing to remember about this is that uh, uh, Commonwealth, specifically coming out of the, the British general staff, wants to see us attack, and Churchill's uh, often used terms, the soft underbelly of Europe, which is, doesn't prove to be too soft. For us, we would like in 1942, going into 43, to take um, uh, the main force of uh, the primary coalition partner on the Axis side, the Germans on directly, and we push in 42, 43 to land in, in Europe. 
Um, uh, and what I'll say in a, in a series of conferences, uh, the decision is made rather late uh, in early 1943 that we will follow up what's going on in Tunisia by attacking um, by attacking Italy. And so once that decision's made, they kind of go through a rapid planning process uh, to do this major amphibious assault into, into uh, uh, Sicily. So to sum all that up in classic historian terms, I've probably talked too long <laughs> uh, about this. Um, uh, Sicily in some ways is an accidental campaign um, and it is part of a, uh, a contingent evolutionary process of allied at least uh, Anglo-American uh, uh, strategy in World War II. Okay, that's a very good introduction. Um, let's kind of pull apart the pieces starting on the Allied side. So we have these, these two, kind of two and a half major sides, I guess it's fair to say. We've got the Americans who are eager to start fighting in Europe, but of course North Africa is not Europe. We've got the British who have colonial interests, most especially Egypt to protect. And then we also do have the French who control a good chunk of North Africa, uh, whether Vichy or Free French. So the, this North African campaign that precedes the Sicily campaign is a test both for the coalition and for American fighting forces. So can you, you give us a little bit of detail on, on what exactly was being tested in the Africa campaign and what the result of that was going into Sicily? Sure, absolutely. And, and here I'll talk, you know, with specific reference to, you know, the U.S. Army, right? Uh, there, there was a, a well-known book in some circles that still floats around uh, today called America's First Battles. Uh, and famously, it looks, um, the case study, at least uh, in the Mediterranean European theater, is on Kasserine. And so we, we've created an army almost overnight from bare bones. Um, and uh, we test our assumptions about what combat uh, against what today we call a near-peer power. And certainly, uh, the German-Italian coalition fighting in North Africa uh, is, is a peer power. Um, and uh, there, we discover some very interesting, very interesting things. And I think to sum up, uh, first of all, is uh, one way to look at what happens in North Africa, at least in terms of combat. We're not going to talk about strategy right now. Um, is that it's, 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 it's a test, and it's a test that we pass, but we don't pass with flying colors. So maybe we could call it the gentleman's sea, okay? <laughs> uh, or if that's still appropriate, sorry for the gendered reference there. But, uh, you know, and, and what we discover uh, primarily are, are uh, lessons that are probably well known if they're military history, uh, you know, uh, aficionados out there is that uh, when we look over at Europe, we test the learning that we've had from watching this war from afar. One of the big, one of the big uh, uh, things we assume is that, uh, that, for example, tanks don't fight tanks. And we have a branch, which no longer exists today, called the Tank Destroyer Corps. Tanks, uh, uh, tank destroyers deal with German tanks. Our tanks are used primarily of arms of decision on the offense. And what we discover in uh, North Africa is both that the kit that we've issued to the tank destroyer uh, units, uh, they're uh, primarily half-tracks with 75-millimeter guns mounted on them, um, uh, are, are not effective when assaulted by German tanks. And, that, uh, uh, and we learn this in the process there, that we've, we've got to tweak our doctrine a little bit. And this happens in many realms. I mean, uh, in terms of uh, uh, actually how to operate large units, we start out at the beginning of the Tunisian campaign 
uh, on what is the southern uh, southern flank of the Allied effort, which is coming from uh, from Morocco and Algeria. In the Eighth Army is approaching from the south, and the Americans largely are holding the southern end of that front. Uh, and and given the scale, uh, the immense size of it, we end up uh, subdividing uh, units. Uh, so, for example, uh, armored divisions have their constituent, today we'll call them brigades, back then they called them combat commands, that will be separated. So divisions aren't fighting as divisions. The same holds true of, of uh, the Big Red One, which is, is, is there. It's not generally deployed as a division. So one of the other things we learn is that this, uh, if we want to call it with what used to be a term in vogue, modularity, that we can take these constituent parts of larger units, put them back, uh, put them back together, or break them apart to accomplish separate tasks. This doesn't work as well. So there's some simple lessons, uh, in addition to the wake-up call that, hey, this tank destroyer idea, we can use them, and we will use them differently in Northwest Europe, we'll evolve with our thinking, but what we assume going in isn't right. The same thing's true here. We have a division for a reason. Um, we need to fight a core as a core. One of the simple lessons is we, you need to mass these units together so you get um, both uh, uh, mass combat power, but there's something that happens um, as well, giving commanders more options when they have maneuver elements rather than breaking them apart. So there are plenty of other lessons that we learn uh, there. You know, uh, another basically is this. We, this is where, uh, at least in the Mediterranean theater and, and uh, later going into Europe, where we play the bud price of being new. It's one thing to train for combat, and I've never served. Uh, I'll be upfront about it. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking as an academic here. It's another thing to actually have to do it on the ground. And so uh, here is the place where we learn what it means to have to execute military operations in the, in the field when it's, uh, the, the, the game is real mm -hmm. uh, at this point. It's not practicing against yourself. And also what it means to lose, right? You mentioned Kasserine Pass, the battle that the U.S. basically lost. Uh, I, I'd say about Kasserine, um, and uh, it's probably most famous because of the initial tactical actions. But, uh, you know, we, we can, I, I'd say at the end, we actually won that at the end of the series of battles um, uh, uh, for various reasons. What we don't do is, is win it particularly because we're very skilled. There's some decision making on the German side. Uh, they make some mistakes in terms of how to command and control at the highest level. The forces that are there, there's an argument between uh, Field Marshals von Arnhem and, and Rommel. Um, nevertheless, it wasn't handed to us, but even at the end of those battles, let's make no mistake, um, you know, the line basically returns to where it was at the end. So what we can say is, uh, I think in that, if I put it in football uh, metaphor, and you may get a few of these today, is uh, the first quarter did not go well for us. <laughs> right. All right. But by, by the time the clock ticked, uh, you know, the, the, the winning side uh, was the side of uh, right and freedom, which was us. Okay. <laughs> Right, so we were the Allies are sitting in Tunis in early 1943, and you mentioned all of these great kind of lower level tactical lessons. What does the North Africa campaign teach the Allies and the Allied leaders about coalition warfare? I think that's probably you know uh, most significantly. And uh, uh, look for specialists. We talk about these things. I think you know when. Uh, 
when we think more generally about the study of military history, it's the reason why Kasserine is something. If I say Kasserine passed, the most folks have read anything about um, World War II, they can tell you kind of what happened. What's less, uh, I think, apparent is the significance both of, of what happens in North Africa, and I would make this case because I know we're heading to Sicily in a little while, uh, and in Sicily in terms of it being an essential learning experience for what it's going to mean when, um, when we have to cooperate with other host nation militaries for a common cause. And I think uh, even today it's one of the hardest things uh, to accomplish. Often we're the lead partner. Uh, I think uh, 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 this is an aside, and I am not speaking for the Army when I say this, but I think, you know, if, if the Army deploys in the field, it'd be so much more e easy when there are no coalition partners around and we all understand each other and we don't have to negotiate national caveats. So in North Africa, one of the things, uh, you know, there's several problems, uh, you know, one of which uh, is we have a new major partner or what could become a new major partner, and it, it's, it's the French who, uh, at least initially, some of the Vichy French units uh, fight rather well. Some don't fight so well, but they fight. Uh, others um, come over to the other side. There's politics going on at the highest levels of French command. So what is that going to mean? Um, it's one of Eisenhower's biggest problems is negotiating, which is uh, what, uh, at not being a French specialist, and gang, I'm sitting here with one, okay? <laughs> so I say this with trepidation. Uh, from an American's perspective um, that is not a specialist, French politics are always fractious, and we don't quite understand what's going on. That's going on in the background at the highest level of command. I mean, Eisenhower is a general. Uh, he often gets taken to task for not having a grip on what's going on into, and, and really focusing the combat power. Um, uh, one of his biggest problems is negotiating, okay, you know, what is this French coming on board going to mean? And the payoff for that are the free French units, which of course will fight with us both on the Italian peninsula. And look, there are a few battalions of French that are fighting with us in Sicily. Uh, the French will deploy a, an ill-equipped corps in, in generally in the center of the Tunisian front. All that's interesting, but, but in order to enable that to happen and to create this relationship, right, um, uh, there are things going on behind the scenes. So regarding the French, I think one of the major lessons for the Americans is anytime de Gaulle shows up, we're going to be upset. No one wanted to be with it, right? But this is going to be hard, but it's also incredibly important, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they're negotiating as well the role that um, civilian diplomats are going to play in that. And I'll give you one example at a practical level relative to the military. Um, and in modern military doctrine, we, one, of the, one of the things we focus on after we've won or taken over ground is something called consolidating gains. Part of what consolidating gains uh, uh, entails is, of course, you know, recreating um, at least normal conditions for the people on the ground. In North Africa, the lead, our assumption was that the leads on this were largely going to be a partnership with civilians, but civilians were, you know, civilian entities, State Department, others were going to play a bigger role. Um, this goes against where we are today relative to our doctrine uh, uh, here and certainly with what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. But what we learned there is it's so much easier if we make a military governor and actually generals of the lead. Uh, so that's another lesson um, at the highest level that we lear learn that when we are going to reintegrate um, 
Uh, in Sicily, it's going to be a belligerent power. Um, uh, in North Africa, it's a little it, it's a little different as the Vichy uh, regime falls and they come on board. But we we learn that as well. Now the big one, of course, um, is uh, how's this going to work with Great Britain? Um, and uh, there's been a, a ton of ink uh, spilled about that. But um, uh, what we what we negotiate, and I think it's particularly worthy of, of even more close scrutiny than I'll mention here, is at this point in the war, uh, America, in terms of generating combat power, um, is uh, in the second chair. Uh, the British are both experienced, uh, their, their army and theater is bigger. So here's an experience of us coming on board um, with someone, and uh, I don't know if anyone out there's ever experienced it, but I'll, I'll give credit to British academics for doing pretense really well if they choose to do so. Um, and, and we arrive in here as the newbies, um, and uh, we're a bit green. They feel like they've got stuff to teach us, but they also hold a preponderance of both experience and combat power and theater. And so how is this going to work? Uh, the command structure is they develop is rather interesting. Of course, Dwight David Eisenhower are, are, will be in charge um, in, in the theater overall, but all three of the major um, uh, domain uh, commanders, uh, uh, ground, um, sea, and air, are British. So we've got a mixed command structure. How is this going to work on the ground? The staffs are mixed relative to what I mentioned earlier and uh, consolidation of gains, even in um, if you're doing civil affairs operations, there are going to be British officers in and NCOs in the American zone working with Americans. And there will be Americans with Anglo ones. How is this going to work? And all of this is new. Uh, there's doctrine for it, but of course doctrine is what we think is going to happen and then what happens. So, um, there are uh, I, I, a long roundabout answer with a whole bunch of uh, 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 rabbit holes we could go down into, but um, I think probably the best answer to this at the highest level is like on the ground, it's a learning laboratory for especially the Americans mm -hmm. and for the British uh, who, who, who need to be uh, perhaps educated that we won't do exactly what they want to tell us what you should do right. as well, how to work. Right. They will not end up being the senior partner they want. No, they won't. But at this point, they are. Right. And that that's part of both the problem and the fascinating part of this campaign and why it's worthy of study. Yeah, for sure. So let's flip this around. Let's talk about this from the Axis perspective, right? Uh, I think a, a lot of people tend to forget or maybe aren't unaware of the fact that Italy invented fascism. They're kind of the original Axis power. Um, the Italian leader Mussolini named the Axis powers. And, and, and yet, by this point, Italy is almost a vestigial part of the Axis alliance. Um, so, so what's the dynamic like on the, the German-Italian side of this fight? Well, I mean, that's fascinating. And I think, uh, I think that's a great question as well. I think, you know, and, and, and the natural segue here might be to, to talk about this idea of coalition warfare. And, uh, and of course, if we just take one macro step back, so I'm going to generalize here, uh, uh, is, is to say, you know, uh, originally, I think the Germans assumed that the Italians were going to be better, and, and Hitler admired Mussolini. Uh, it's clear, uh, even a few years earlier, that uh, uh, the southern theater, the Mediterranean, was going to be Italy's. 
uh, the Germans uh, quickly determined that um, Italy is not going to do well militarily, and there are many reasons for that, which I won't go into um, down there, and they're going to need help. Uh, by late 1942-43, um, the Mediterranean is a theater in which uh, uh, the, the Germans are playing perhaps the lead, well, not perhaps, on the ground they're playing the lead role. Um, I, I do think it is a mistake to say this. The Italians fight in Tunisia, and many of the units that fight in North Africa fight well. Essentially, and I'm overgeneralizing here, we can think of that the Italian army in World War II is, would have been a really good World War I army. Um, uh, but there, if, if Germany has a very small, mechanized, motorized tip to the Wehrmacht, um, the Italians multiply that by three, and plus their kit isn't very well, uh, very good as well. Uh, like Alpha, uh, uh, forgive me and don't sue us, Alpha Romeo, but your cars look great, but um, if I want reliability, maybe I'm getting a Subaru or, or a BMW. So right. th they've got issues there. Now, what are they learning, and what's that looking like? Uh, at this point, the Germans are becoming particularly dictatorial, and this will carry forward from what's happened already in North Africa, what's happening, of course, on the Eastern Front where Italian units are also fighting, um, that Germany is dictating to Italy what's going to happen. So if the story on the Allied side, and we'll develop this more in Sicily, um, is one where the coalition, and this could, this, I, I, I caution everyone, this is contingent, and this is one of the brilliant successes on the Allied side, is we figure out there's fractiousness. It's never going to be perfect. How to work together. The story on the Axis side, both in, um, in the Tunisian campaign, what happens in North Africa, and especially in Sicily, is one where increasingly the Germans are ignoring the Italians, telling them what they're going to do. And this filters all the way down to tactical units when withdrawal orders are issued to German units who leave the Italians hanging out to dry. So on one side, we have a developing relationship. And on the other side, we have one that is falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so we've got maybe two things we can look at. How one works well, and perhaps primarily what you don't want to do. And to, to spoil something for after the Sicily campaign, when the when the Allies land on the mainland, the Italians actually depose Mussolini, and then he's set back up as a German puppet. They, so that relationship deteriorates they, even further. Later. They do. They actually depose Mussolini in the middle of the landings in Sicily, mm. and um, and I, I'm going to give I, I, I'll I'll look forward just a little yeah. bit, and and tell you that uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, one thing to remember about the the Italian side during this period, and especially the 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 mid 1943 um, in Sicily, leading up to the surrender, right, um, which which of course uh, doesn't happen until um, until we land in uh, you know on the mainland, um, is that Italy is trying to look for a way out. There's a civil war going on. And so imagine having to fight for your country while politically at the highest level you have folks that are committed to fascism and others who say we never were and now's our chance. And other moderate fascists are saying, um, I was kind of on this side because they were in power. We got to get off this horse. 
Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? So that there's complexity that sits out behind that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it, Italy is also a monarchy during this period to make it even more complicated. It it is. Yeah. So uh, the Allies are looking across the strait from Tunis to Sicily. It's it's kind of a natural bridge into mainland Italy. It is. So there's the the geostrategic aspect kind of makes sense. Uh, how are the Axis defending Sicily? What's what's there waiting for the Allies? Um, well, I. Simply put, we'll talk about you know each part of the coalition that's there. So the prime, the primary uh, forces that are there, there are over two hundred thousand Italians. Um, the the best at remaining at, uh, Italian army units in nineteen forty three were generally deployed into Tunisia, um, and uh, the great success in Tunisia was, of course, we captured almost all of them, unless you were wounded and flown out, okay? So what's in Sicily on the Italian side are primarily, and I think the number's eight, what are called coastal divisions. We can think of them not as a National Guard, but really as militia. Many of them are from Sicily, and they are a tripwire along the the primary landing areas all the way around this really massive island that are there. There are four um, what we would call today maneuver divisions. Um, and I, I would argue they're, they're maneuverable in an Italian sense. So these are regular <clears throat> army divisions. One of them is a mountain division. Uh, there is a motorized division there that can move around. And then there's a, a fistful of small kind of, the best way to call them would be uh, anti-paratrooper units that have trucks so they can move quickly. So there's some decent Italian units, but the best ones that had the same organization are already written off the Italian order of battle. So you've got a whole bunch of folks who you really hope they'll fight, but you're not real sure. From the exterior, we can't tell, right? If you came and landed in Norfolk, Virginia, our hope is that the Virginia units we deploy will fight, right? From the Allied perspective, we look at it. From the Italian perspective, it'll prove that they've got a lot of people, but not much. The key is that um, the Germans, and, and this is what happens in North Africa, generally it carries over into there, is they won't fight unless we stiffen them. And uh, the Germans have two divisions, uh, plus a big Luftwaffe contingent, which includes a whole bunch of uh, what uh, at least military technologists, uh, you know, or, or fans of military history, a whole bunch of uh, direct fire for their, their uh, 88 millimeter guns, which can be used in a direct fire mode. But the, the Luftwaffe has some combat power there, which you can use in ground combat. So there are two German divisions. Um, the, the units that will eventually, it'll rise to four plus, right? Four plus German divisions on the island. These are 18. So if the Italians have four kind of decent, right, but not great, um, they have the coastal divisions, not very good. Um, and you've got a Luftwaffe contingent that's pretty good. The German contingent on the island is, is quite good. The question then gets uh, to get directly at what you asked me, I think about five minutes ago, was how are they going to defend it? Um, and uh, uh, here, here generally was the idea. We, we have a crust on the shore and then we counter attack. Uh, the Germans will learn, and this is one of the keys about what they learned from Sicily looking, looking ahead. We can't help but do it. They didn't know uh, we were going to land in Normandy. We know that they did. Is, is this, do you defeat them on the beaches or do you keep your combat power 
away from there when they land then you counter assault and destroy the bridgehead here they try what eventually in this debate that will go on between Rommel um, and, and, and other German commanders about how to defend Northwest Europe, they try out this idea of counterattack, right? So the coastal divisions are, are deployed there. Um, there are essentially um, uh, uh, three divisions posted in one area around Palermo, which we almost landed at, uh, including one German division, two of those uh, decent Italian divisions, and then there are three posted where we eventually landed. Um, and uh, uh, the plan then is the Allies will land, we'll identify that landing. On day one, we will launch a core level, that is three, three division plus, counterattack against them because when they get off the beach, they're going to be disorganized. That's the type of the way and how you kill the division. Um, there are roughly 700 German and Italian aircraft which are within range of Sicily. Um, so we're also going to use our aerial assets to hit these uh, transports that are located offshore. So the idea isn't really to defeat them on the beach, but it's to counterattack them there. That, in essence, is the setup. Interestingly, there is an Italian general in charge, nominally. And I'll leave that right there, <laughs> okay? Because there's another informal chain of German command that goes back with uh, 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 two levels. But the Italians generally in large. Okay, so uh, for people who aren't that familiar with kind of the geography of Sicily, could you walk us through that a little bit and explain what the Allies are going to be attacking into in terms of the, the physical aspect of the Absolutely, and, and I will say, uh, having read deeply about Sicily before uh, having gone to the island, and I've been there uh, several times and visited primarily American uh, battlefields, but I've also uh, done the, the, uh, the, the British ones as well. Um, the thing that hits you in the face after reading it is uh, uh, the thing that hits hits me, and this will I, I'll be upfront about my interpretation of the Sicily campaign. I think, and it, it bears on geography. So bring me back around if I forget <laughs> that. Um, it is this um, oftentimes the way we have interpreted the Sicily campaign is that it's a campaign with a beginning the landing with the counterattack and our defeat of it. And it is a campaign at the end where um, German and Italian forces are able to leave the island successfully as opposed to what happened in North Africa. And in other words, we won, but in one of the, uh, the major authors on this, it's a, it's a bitter victory. You know, it doesn't taste good. We won, but we could have done better. Um, uh, the question again, I, I wanted to preface that. What, what were we... Go ahead. Well, uh, where so the the kind of the general geography yes. of the island. There we right? go. So, having read that, I kind of bought it. That's the standard interpretation. You go to the island to look at operations, and the thing that smacked me in the face when I got there is not the campaign there last thirty eight days. Is is not how could we let them get away? Why did it take thirty eight days? It's why did it take why didn't it take 60 days 90 days the objective on the islands for the axis at least of the german high command is to hold the allies there until the fall because they are propping up italy right it is a it is it is, it isn't in essence a place where we can do the terrain is incredibly complex um, in military terms in terms of planning there are three major ports on the island so it is a triangle 
if we think about uh, the triangle, I'm trying to think about this act. If you go up to the north, um, the northeast corner, there is a port of Messina uh, right across from it. And you can take a ferry and cross this area today in 20 minutes uh, to Reggio Calabria. Um, that's the key. So the tip of Italy's boot almost touches the top corner where the port of Messina is. That um, operationally is the key to the island. It is the ingress but also egress route for any Axis forces on it. The, and, and then if we, if we follow over and we think of the top of the island as being flat in a triangle, along that northern coast is the major port of Palermo. And the, on, on the other arm, extending from, I guess, the northeast to the southwest, is uh, the other major port. Actually, there, there are two. There's uh, Calabria, uh, excuse me, um, Catania, there's the naval port of Augusta, and uh, there's the, the famous, uh, at least for Thucydides, of Syracuse. So military geography, um, these ports are going to be key for logistics. Okay, so we've laid that out. Um, the terrain on the island, uh, there are plains when, you, uh, when it's dry. Uh, it looks as if you should be able to drive tanks across at least the open areas, and these are all alluvial river valleys. Um, having been there, it, uh, they're, they're swampy and uh, tanks will become mired in them. So what looks from afar and you read about it is maneuver planes. But most of the island is, the best way I can say it, is very old rocks, right? So uh, I don't know that there's anything directly comparable in the United States. I would say the difference between the Rocky Mountains. The mountains there aren't Rocky Mountains, right? Sharp edges and pretty. We want to visit them. They're kind of more akin without trees to what we're dealing with on the East Coast with the Appalachians, right? So it's mountainous terrain, mountain warfare, mm -hmm. which, by the way, uh, for the Americans was a specialized pursuit, right? Uh, you train specific divisions. It's what folks trained to do it we're going to do. That is going to typify this. So uh, 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 the things that dominated are the geography. The Port of Messina is the goal. Um, taking the ports in order to sustain logistics and think about this most of the island is what today we would call highly restrictive terrain. Mm -hmm. That's the significant uh, I think things that are going to dominate planning for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah and, and you brought up Thucydides. Sicily is an island that's seen a lot of campaigning over the millennia and generally as you, as you suggest the fighting tends to be confined to the outside to the kind of coastal regions. You don't see a lot in the center it's also important to remember, as you, as you also brought up earlier, this is a big island. It's not a small space. Yeah. It's a very large island. And if you're going around it, that's going to complicate your operations, right? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think you, you bring up a big point, and I'll be shorter in my answer than I have perhaps <laughs> been with these. Okay, so, uh, uh, you know, the, I think the scale of the, the island, we can just look at the, uh, the organizational chart for Allied forces. This is an army group. Effort. 15th Army Group, uh, commanded by uh, Field Marshal, uh, British Field Marshal um, Alexander, is in charge. There's an American Army, 7th Army, which is born at sea, although it's organized before. Um, and then British 8th Army under General Montgomery. So what we've got here are, this, this is a big enough island that this is two armies that are deployed on it. This is a major land landmass. So this is not comparable outside of perhaps the invasion of the Philippines, right, to anything in the Pacific, right? Um, this isn't, you know, land, fight hard for three days, and it should fall. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and this is this would be a substantial part of the entire U.S. military's combat power today, at least in terms of manpower, oh, if not uh, firepower. Yeah, uh, no, uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, in, in terms, I was talking about this with someone the other day. I mean, uh, the best number I have right now is we have roughly 20,000 active duty, 11 Bravos, that's infantrymen. I mean, the people who are actually, there are other... There are other jobs in the infantry, but 20,011 Bravos. We've de we deploy in Sicily more than the current infantry strength of the U.S. Army, but we, we have more active duty divisions today. So in terms of combat power, I would argue, you know, it's bigger than an effort we can make today, at least in terms of folks who engage at the sharp end. Okay. So the Allies are looking at this problem. As you say, large island, a lot of restrictive terrain. You've got the, the four important ports. So what's the Allied plan going into Sicily, and then how do they execute that plan? Yeah, I, I, I will make uh, an assiduous effort to, to keep this short, and the story can be quickly tell, told. So first of all, I think it's important for us to remember this in terms of framing this. The mission gets handed down in early 1943, um, plan, uh, so the, the planning for this happens fast. This is not Normandy planning. So uh, the second thing is that the major allied commanders and, and most of our staffs are engaged with fighting in North Africa at the same time. So these are two important things to, to, to remember when we begin to look at it. Um, uh, and, and the plans then largely take place while the people, George S. Patton on the American side and uh, Field Marshal Montgomery on the British side, are directly engaged in fighting Axis units in North Africa. So the bosses aren't there. Indeed, Patton won't be named as the commander until after planning's already begun on the American side. This is going to make things kind of interesting. The headquarters are divided geographically. So there's an air component, a sea component, and a ground component. So all of them are not co-located going to be difficult to talk to each other. And we kind of hatch an initial plan that, that sees this, and I, I call this maybe the Ferrari plan, right? Uh, and I mean that in a good way, although mentioning uh, Alfa Romeo is not being reliable. <laughs> this, this, is, this, this is sophisticated, right? If you're going to get a high-level sports car, you're going to get performance. It might pay off, right, if you're in a drag race. Um, but it's also going to be complex. And so the initial plan is for the American contingent to aim at, and what drives us here are those ports I mentioned earlier, the major port of Palermo, primarily to seize that quickly before it can be destroyed in order to, do, um, to be able to sustain 7th Army ashore. The British are going to focus down at, uh, at uh, uh, initially um, at Syracuse um, and then Catania. And so their log base is going to be kind of in the southeast or west corner of the island, and we're going to land in the northwest, divided by roughly 100 miles, okay? Um, what happens, and if you've seen the movie Patton, it didn't really happen that way, but okay. Uh, we don't know that Montgomery uh, breathed on a mirror and then drew out the plan, but the concern here, and this, 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 this drives it, is, look, um, the one thing that can't happen here, and remember this is a learning experience, is failure. Concentrate combat power. And uh, Field Marshal Montgomery has a lot of what today we might call WASTA, and he is able to say, look, um, we could be defeated in detail. 
Uh, one of the, the, the issues with the initial planning was that we couldn't land these two landings simultaneously. So the American landing was going to be echeloned a little bit later, which is, means that the, the, the Italians and the uh, Germans would have a chance to react. So in the end, what happens is on roughly a 110-mile length of coast, extending around one of the, the tips of that triangle in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the southwestern corner of the island, is that the British and the Americans will land together. Seize that, consolidate um, there, um, and then see what's going to happen next. The aim point was always going to be seizing Messina because that's the back door. It means anybody left on the island can't get off. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we now have achieved the Allied landings, as you mentioned. Uh, walk us through how the campaign goes for the next uh, forty odd days. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll say uh, I think in the macro sense, the best way to think about this is that there are three phases. The two I mentioned, we always look at. One is the delay action which leads to the withdrawal, that's the end. The other is the break-in with the counterattack and its defeat on the coast. The majority of the campaign is the middle, okay? The decision to leave uh, Sicily and its execution doesn't happen until, oh, I, I'll put a round, uh, round date on it, say roughly August 5th, 6th, 7th, right, right there. We land uh, paratroopers on the night of July 9th. The major landings will take place on July 10th. Uh, there's interesting stuff that happens with this, I'll say, consolidation phase, break-in and consolidation phase for the first four days. What about those 30-some days or roughly a month in between? So three phases. What happens is we land. Um, uh, the Germans and Italians execute the plan, which is to counterattack the beachhead. The best terrain to do that is a place called Jalo. It is where Patton famously, there was another division scheduled to be there, takes 1st Infantry Division, says, I want them included, and they are assigned specifically with reinforcements, so it's bigger than just the normal uh, organization of 1st Infantry. At Jayla, we predict that if there's a counterattack coming because it's the best maneuver space, tanks, half-tracks, mechanized troops can maneuver there, they'll counterattack there. They counterattack. Um, we uh, defeat that counterattack, and the effort then is to accelerate the pace, uh, to consolidate, but then to transition into taking the rest of the island. That takes place um, early on. Lots of, uh, uh, of, of, of folks in telling the story of the Sicily campaign focus on it. The middle part of the campaign is reducing the troops that are on the island. So one of the common misconceptions, I think, is that, um, look, both sides knew they, that, that eventually, right, you were going to leave Sicily. One of the common misconceptions is it was part of a master plan. This was nothing except from the beginning, a big delay action. I would say from our perspective today, that's probably true, but that doesn't mean they planned it that way. Like, in other words, hold this phase line for one week. We're going to go back. We're going to go back. We're going to go back. It didn't work out that way. The middle part of the campaign, and increasingly I think folks are beginning to look at this in the historiography, is where we convince, and I want to say this, someone had to make the Italians and Germans leave. That's the part we haven't studied. The things we look at, at least in the American sector, I'll take one famous thing, is Patton's advance to Palermo. Got a lot of headlines. That's not the most important thing that's happening there. Okay, um, in fact, it, it is those forces, primarily at that point of the campaign when we're transitioning over, 
is what 1st Infantry Division is doing. And 1st Infantry Division did not take Palermo, okay? Um, what's going on on the, the British um, side, at least earlier in this middle phase that I'm talking about, is to get to Messina. So early on, the Commonwealth forces are aiming right up um, one side of the triangle along the coast road to rapidly take Messina. That's always the goal. That doesn't work out. There's a paratroop drop, uh, famous fighting between um, uh, German Falsam Jaeger Green Devils and British paratroopers Red Devils over especially Primasoli Bridge. Montgomery's efforts to, to speed the, speedily go up um, the, uh, the, the kind of south, um, the southeastern coast road bogged down. On the 14th, um, he gets permission to move over into what, at least conceptually in initial planning, was the American sector and, seize, and to take a key road. In other words, he's looking to do a left hook to, to continue um, with the Commonwealth forces being the main effort to move on Messina. Um, when that bogs down, then the priority of effort shifts over into the American sector later on. And that leads to discussions, at least uh, in the popular literature, about a race, so-called, and in Patton, a so-called race to Messina. Commenting on that, which you're probably going to come to at some point, I will say this, and I want to be definitive about this, okay? Um, uh, there was a race to Messina, and the race was in Patton's mind. Uh, contrary to the movie, Montgomery wasn't racing. And in fact, he goes to Harold Alexander, he's a professional soldier, and he says, look, we can't get through. You need to prioritize the American effort. Um, now, that being said, was there national pride at stake? Sure, he would like to have been there before the Americans, but I want to be clear, it was a one-horse race. The other horse really didn't care that much and didn't see it that way. Right, right, which makes for a less dramatic movie, I imagine. Yes, and, and I'll, I'll, it does, yeah. And, and that gets to another problem sometimes with campaign histories is we want to hear about great men or women today behaving badly. Right? Generally, this is professionally executed. The last phase of the campaign, once we've convinced in fighting the Germans and Italians to leave, then is the professionally executed retrograde across the Straits of Messina. And that gets talked about a lot as well. Okay, so let's dive into some of these details. Uh, let's start with this, this Axis counterattack that you mentioned. So yep. the, the Allies have landed. As you mentioned, the Axis plan was to counterattack and push them back into the sea. Uh, so, so how does that go? Obviously, it didn't work. But. Yeah. Well, the plan was for on, uh, well, first of all, uh, I'll set the array of forces, okay? Um, there are uh, uh, two Italian uh, divisions in the area where um, the Allied landings take place in the, uh, in the uh, I guess, the, the, the bottom corner kind of in the, in the southern portion of Italy. There's one German division. Uh, it's, uh, it is uh, a Luftwaffe division. Um, with a big name, the Hermann Goring Panzer Jaeger Division. It has been reconstituted, and I want to qualify this. So you got two good Italian divisions with those coastal divisions. The plan on day one is for a core level, that is all of those, to counterattack landings. Uh, one of the Italian divisions, the Napoli Division, uh, gets bound up in fighting against the British, but the major attack is this Italian Livorno Division, a motorized division, with Hermann Goring steaming down the Jela Plain, hitting First ID. It would be right in the middle of the American sector, and that will begin the, the erosion of the bridgehead. What happens? 
I'll say this, and this will go contrary. It's in the literature, but it often doesn't get pointed at, okay? The Germans would love for us to say this is a fight between the Germans and the Commonwealth that the Italians aren't there. The only people we fought on the beaches around Jela on day one, be clear, day one, July 10th, were Italians. The Italians executed the plan. The Hermann Goring Panzer Falsenjäger um, has just arrived on the island. They don't have time to practice. Um, they've got issues in their command structure. In fact, after day one, one of their brigade commanders will be relieved, and they are unable to get into position to make that attack. It's a two-day counterattack. On day two, they do get tanks into the plane, all right? They counterattack us. It's a close-run thing. One of the learning experiences that we get, and one of the reasons tanks land in the first wave, for example, at Omaha and Utah beaches in 1944, is we land our tanks later there, and we don't have really good anti-tank capability. Fortunately, um, the U.S. Navy cooperated incredibly well in both the planning phase uh, um, and, and execution phase. And uh, we are using uh, uh, light cruiser guns, sometimes in a direct fire mode, against German tanks. And uh, that's short range fire for, uh, for things like light cruisers and destroyers. So it's largely defeated by the folks on the ground uh, with the support of Navy gun buyer support. Um, the Air Force does not play really a role in rejecting that. So close run thing, some German tanks get within a half mile of the beachhead. Uh, I would say um, it was a very exciting time, but they didn't really have anything to follow that up with, but we defeated. It's perhaps the most dramatic portion of the battle, which is one reason why it gets. That and the paratroop drop elsewhere with the 82nd Airborne, which is deployed as a division for the first time. Okay, so we've now had the Axis counterattack fail. We generally have the British assigned to kind of the easternmost part of the landing zone, the, the Americans to the west. Right. Um, of this kind of triangular southeastern tip of Sicily. Um, you mentioned that the, the British are now going to try to fight their way north to Messina. They fail, they get bogged down, um, while the Americans are working their way kind of more to the north and west to Palermo. So, so talk us through kind of this middle phase that you mentioned that doesn't get a lot of attention. Yeah, and I, I, I try to keep it more succinct than my earlier, uh, my earlier uh, response. Okay, so the priority effort, what we'd say today, is the Commonwealth. And look, th this made us a little angry, gang, on the American side. Remember this, we're negotiating coalition partnership. Um, Seventh Army, there really isn't a plan for how to reduce the island. Many have pointed at this and said this is bad. There should have been a detailed plan with phase lines. Um, it, they never work. We knew the objective. Uh, land, consolidate, see what happens. So the initial portion of this is uh, Montgomery aiming rapidly, speeds the key, before the Germans can consolidate and the Italians can consolidate. Uh, the Germans react very quickly. Uh, they will use portion of their strategic reserve, paratroopers, to drop in and in front of Catania. Um, fighting occurs there. And so what we see in this middle portion of the campaign is a hardening of the fight along that main approach corridor um, along the kind of southeastern side of the island 
where they say, okay, we know you want to go here quickly. We're not going to let that happen. The Germans and Italians then will assume some risk out to the west. And there's, it looks like on the map there's maneuver space out there. Montgomery's first decision is, okay, I can't get directly at Catania. I am going to left hook them, which leads to them, from the American perspective, of stealing one of our roads, which kind of uh, uh, goes north. And it was, at least on the map, in the American sector. That doesn't work either. But now we've shifted the boundary. From the American side, and we were a little angry about this, and from the British perspective, this is going to be over quickly, 7th Army is our flank guard. In other words, you're not the main effort, but we become one of the main efforts. That's kind of the story of the evolution of these operations. Uh, seizing Palermo ends up not being that significant. We are able to do something we have not heretofore been able to do, an untried concept, over-the-beach sustainment. In fact, 7th Army's throughput for supplies over the beach, which was not something the Germans planned for, ends up being greater than what the British can push through the port of uh, Syracuse. So we can sustain these folks, and this is key, right? We aim north and then move in along that northern coast road in. The key I would make the case for you isn't just the coast where the tourists go today. And by the way, if you go to Italy, uh, Sicily, go to the coast. It's where most of the Roman and Greek ruins are. But the interior of the island where, um, interestingly, uh, 1st Canadian Division will fight uh, for British 8th Army right alongside 1st um, U.S. Um, in the center is, is where I would make the case that the decision is made in Italy. It is the fighting of those two divisions and later U.S. 9th and British 78th in the center, aiming for places like uh, Enna, uh, Troina, where the, big, where the most severe fighting of the entire Sicily campaign takes place. And once we have attrited and penetrated the German and Italian stop line defense there, the decision by them is made to, um, to withdraw. They then do so, uh, you know, consciously do the phased withdrawal from uh, from Sicily with us with us attacking. Okay, and you you transition us now to kind of the the third phase of the campaign, and and as you mentioned, this is kind of historiographically uh, controversial. The idea that that the and I'm doing air quotes, the Allies let the Germans and Italians leave Sicily. Um, so how does that unfold after this difficult fighting, both in these in these ports and in the, the center of the island? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to challenge, if, if there are folks who've read a lot about the Sicily campaign out there, I'm going to challenge, you know, some, some of what's been said. And, um, and some of the names are big. I mean, the most uh, uh, famous, uh, you know, naval historian, historian of the war, Morrison, said, you know, we, we could have done it, that this was all just a big mistake. So I'm going to preface this by saying, uh, saying this. Um, uh, it, it, from our perspective today, right, removing contingency, when you look across the Strait of Messina, it looks like this should have been done. By this point, we have air superiority over the island. We have naval superiority. And our ground forces have convinced the Italians and the Germans it's time to leave. So we're doing okay there. The ground as you approach Messina um, is, uh, is mountainous. There's Mount Etna. You've got to go around both sides of it. Um, and then it begins to constrict as you approach the port of Messina. So the Germans and Italians now are defending a smaller portion as we move forward. 
Nevertheless, and I think this gets to the big thing and one of the reasons why we focus on this as being a place of mistakes. And look, gang, mistakes were made. Uh, is this. I, I think it says more about our fixation on total victory than it does about what victory means. Right. Okay? The objective of landing there was to remove the German and Italians from the island. That's the military objective. It is linked to a strategic objective. And overarching the most important of those is to remove Italy from the war. Mussolini's tottering, and we succeeded there. It is open to the Mediterranean um, to uh, shipping, so now we don't have to go around Africa, right? And we can uh, put air bases there and everything. We accomplish everything, let me say this again, everything we said the mission of landing there was supposed to accomplish, and yet our story here is, what well, we didn't get it all. You know, we were winning, but we didn't keep the shutout. And um, I would argue this, that the story of the withdrawal is one worthy of study, and, and it has been studied, by the way, at staff colleges, okay, of, of how to execute, and we're fighting a professional force, an experienced professional, how to execute a phase withdrawal. From the Allied perspective, uh, some of the lessons are this. Why were they able to get away? Well, part of it is the mission is hard. Um, I, I, I made this case to my students here when I, when I taught here, is if I told you to stop you know, any retrograde from Atchison, Kansas, which is what, 20, 30 miles north of us, across the Missouri, much narrower than it, than it is there, um, to, to Leavenworth, could you do it? It's hard to do. And by the way, you're not sitting right on it. Right. So we're really talking about synchronizing naval and air power. Well, first of all, uh, there's uh, an incredible amount, the most highly defended um, airspace regarding uh, anti-aircraft fire from the ground in the world at this time is the Straits of Messina. So it is a environment in which allied many Allied flyers will not return. So there, it, don't think that it's an easy kind of I line up on a ship going and strafe it or uh, it can happen. So it's tough. Another issue we've got is we're sometimes using um, uh, medium bombers to drop bombs from 10,000 feet on a little ferry target that's moving across. From a naval perspective, um, uh, when, when British naval officers in particular, remember there's a British overall commander of the naval, uh, the naval effort there, look at the Straits of Messina, it brings back memories of things like, you know, the assault on Gallipoli. There could be mines there. There were uh, 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 major um, uh, guns set up to do um, uh, anti-ship defense. Uh, and here's the other caveat relative to the Navy not being real aggressive and, and, and charging in as the court. Every ship that, that engages, every naval vessel that engages um, uh, there at Sicily already plays an essential and assigned role for the follow-on invasion at Salerno. So everything. So if we lose one, it's moving away. So we don't have a preponderance of combat power especially uh, 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 in terms of, uh, of, uh, of combat units, even more significantly, and sometimes folks will say, well, we let them get away. We should have landed in Calabria. Well, the first thing I would say to that is doing an opposed division-level assault um, is not something you do casually. All right, if there are any Marines out there listening, you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of planning. You don't throw one of these on overnight. And the second thing, and this is most significant, is all of the amphibious assets were already tasked 
with the September invasion at Salerno. So if we lose something there, it means we can't, you know, that we, we can't do something later on. So all those things enter in. So maybe a lack of coordination on the Allied side. Remember, we're still learning. It's the first time we've done something like this. It's a much easier task, uh, or it looks like it's going to be a much easier task to put a cork in the bottle at Messina. After all, we've got air bases on the island of Sicily at this point than it is, you know, to, 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 to cross over from Tunisia. In fact, I'd reverse that. Um, you know, crossing the Mediterranean from Tunisia to Italy, retrograding, is actually much more difficult than getting someone across what is essence. We could think of it as a river, mm -hmm. right, in smaller vessels. Yeah, yeah, and, and it sounds like the analogy you're making is a, a college football fan who gets mad that their team only won by 14 instead of 35. No, I... I, I, I I, I think you're tracking where, where I sit. I think we, we neglect uh, uh, oftentimes to discuss what victory means. And we focus too much, and rightly, rightfully so. What can we learn from success? That is a positive question to ask. Mm -hmm. But it's another thing to kick our bottoms for not having, you know, every game be perfect. And I do think that says something a lot both about our military and those who would assess it as military historians sometimes. Mm -hmm. We have this model of perfection. We fell short. Let me tell you why we could have, right? right? And here's the thing. We can't, and by the way, we know more than they did at the time. I know that is also, uh, and John Abel's sitting here, he's the one talking. <laughs> it's one of John Abel's uh, favorite things to say. It's tell me what they knew at the time. Right, so we can understand the decision making. Yeah, and gang, it wasn't just caution. You're going to see that they were too cautious. They were too cautious. Maybe they were right. I'll, I'll allow that. I think um, it wasn't just caution. There, it, this is a complex issue, a mm -hmm. complex question with many things that we can lose resolution on today that led to them not being more aggressive. No, for sure, for sure. Um, but before we talk about kind of the lessons learned, what's kind of the general overall casualty toll on both sides? Uh, it, interesting. Okay, so um, uh, we suffer somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, and I say we, Britain and America, we suffer slightly less than the, our Commonwealth partners, uh, somewhere in the vicinity of fifteen to 18,000 casualties. Okay, the Germans, it depends. Uh, we don't have great ca uh, uh, numbers on them. They withdraw their wounded. So I'll put that in the ballpark of uh, 20 to potentially 30,000 on the island. Okay. So the Allies, ballpark 20,000, a little less. Germans, if you want to go low, we can say 20. So um, the exchange ratio there of one to one. The Italians suffer over uh, more than 100,000. Now, many of those were the coastal divisions. Right. A lot of them are captured. Right. Um, uh, I, will, I, I will put this into context. Every one of the Allied divisions that fights there at the end is still capable of continuing combat operations. Okay. Of the German divisions that quote-unquote got away, one of them is still capable. The others have had their guts, their combat echelon guts torn out of them. Um, the one that's still capable is 29th Panzer Grenadier, and, and they'll be defending the toe in, in, in Calabria. The others have to be uh, refitted and reconstituted. Um, for the Italians, uh, 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 you know, it, they, they, they get off, um, you know, portions of those regular divisions. A lot of the people that get out for the Italians are, are, are support troops. But again, uh, Italy will soon surrender. 
Yeah, and so let's talk about two of the, the mo kind of most infamous casualties of this campaign. First, on the Axis side, as, as you corrected me earlier, the, the Mussolini coup happens yeah. during this. Yeah. And so from now on, we have kind of a contested Italian government, right? We have the, the royal government, which is now allied, and the Mussolini government, which is a puppet of the Germans. Uh, 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 yeah, absolutely. So Mussolini's in jail. He'll soon be freed. Another one of these things I know uh, uh, military history readers out there are probably familiar with. You know, the, the famous Grant Sasso raid and Otto Scornese. Um, we'll, we'll remove him and then they'll set up this fascist republic and some Italian uh, portions of the Italian royal army will side with the fascists and, and whatnot. What's interesting on the Italian side is this. Okay, you've got an old, you, you've got... Uh, all right, so first of all, the Italian, the, uh, the, the king um, and the Italian military high command, uh, we're talking about, um, and look, I, I'm almost geriatric. This is not an insult. They're old. Um, wisdom often comes with that, but so does sometimes an inordinate amount of caution. And here's what the Italians are worried about. They don't surrender immediately when Mussolini's removed, and this, this is interesting. So you've got elements that are trying to figure out how to get off this horse. The Allies are not on the mainland of Italy. What happens if we say we're out before the Allies are here? How do you think the Germans are gonna react? And we already know how they're reacting on the ground to Italian soldiers increasingly as Italy approaches uh, the surrender point. Um, and and I, I'd argue it, it's a complex situation. And uh, what the Italians do is uh, they largely um, almost wait too long. We end up, Eisenhower does, just as we're landing in Salerno, uh, you know, announces the surrender. They're talking back channel with us. And if French politics are complex, um, and frustrating and entertaining to Americans. I'm not even going to begin with Italian politics. So I'm going to leave it there. So, I mean, largely that's what's kind of going on. They're trying to think about how to get off this horse, this tiger they've got on, and they don't want the tiger, which were their friends, the Germans, to eat them before the Allies show up, you know, to defend them. So that's the complex there. Uh, the Germans realize what's happening and react, um, uh, you know, uh, violently because of this waiting to, um, to the Italians. The significance of the campaign in the broadest sense of Italy leaving, and we often forget this. We go, well, you know, the Italian divisions weren't that good. They're not helping out that much. Look, there are 80 divisions in the Italian army. The Italians are doing the counterinsurgency effort in Yugoslavia. They are garrisoning islands of Greece. You don't need everything to be a panzer division. It, it takes more than panzer divisions to fight a war. And, and that's the key. Removing Italy is a significant and major goal, which means now the Germans have more military problems they have to solve. And it's a key building block that leads to our success, along with the military lessons learned, what, what leads to our success in Northwest Europe. We are indirectly helping the Russians because now potential German manpower that could be used elsewhere is having to do things like now fight in Yugoslavia and elsewhere. Yeah, and, and by comparison, uh, you mentioned the 80 Italian divisions. The United States has 89. Yes, so that's by the end of the war. Right. Yes. So uh, let's talk about kind of the other infamous casualty. Um, talk to us a little bit about the patent incident. Yeah, so there are two patent incidents. 
uh, slapping incidents, and that too. And uh, you haven't mentioned mafia. Thank you. <laughs> All right. That's another one I often get asked about. But well, well, maybe that's a great place to end up. Okay. Um, uh, uh, clearly a controversial uh, incident. Um, uh, I, 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 and and the, the this at, consequently because there are uh, uh, Patton. Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, pe many folks have a bromance with Patton, even some professional historians. So I'm going to tread here and do it briefly because that could be a whole other talk. So essentially what happened, all right, in two incidents in hospitals was that Patton um, physically assaulted, and by that I don't mean, you know, like took out a stick and beat him, right, slapped, um, uh, 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 psych psychiatric casualties. Um, he will... Uh, after the first incident, when he becomes aware of this, you know, he, in his own mind, um, this is unacceptable. We could do a psych evaluation of Patton and say, you know, people's actions often reflect more of themselves, and maybe that's his own biggest fear, be under pressure that at some point people crack. Um, you know, one of the understudied elements, and at least, uh, uh, you know, the, the most read, are the number of psych casualties that we suffer. They're going to happen. The people he hit were, 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 were uh, our policy at the time was that they did go to hospitals where combat wounds, actual ones, not mental ones, right? And I say actual ones, forgive me for that. This is a wound as well, but ones you can see um, are done. And, um, you know, he, he, he saw wounded soldiers in the physical sense, sees this, and then reacts. Uh, we can't condone that. Uh, it's recognized at the time. Uh, to be fair, uh, it's kind of brushed under by the American military. Not a story you want to see when we're engaging here of an American general uh, uh, doing this, and, it, and it's a news reporter that ends up breaking it. Interestingly, there were news reporters who knew it before, it's an interesting relationship, that didn't report it, eventually that story breaks. So uh, if I'm to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a psychologist, and I don't know that this would be effective patent in here to talk to us here at the table, and everything is on one level, you can kind of, uh, you, you can understand where he might have been, which is not to condone it. Um, the, these two incidents. Um, I can tell you the reaction of the troops in the field, okay? Uh, Patton um, uh, did, at the end of the campaign, before he, he leaves command of 7th Army, go to every division. So the campaign's over. Um, uh, one of the soldiers he hit was from 1st Infantry Division. And I've read the reports about what happened. So the entire division's on parade. Patton comes and talks to him. Uh, he was neither cheered, no one clapped, stony silence, and he rode away. That tells you how the American soldier, once they became, became aware of that, and, 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 and I'd say these just weren't support elements, there were combat elements there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in other divisions that he visited, 45th Infantry Division, for example, has the same thing. Patton comes in, gives the same speech. He, he rides in, people are clapping. Right? Um, a famous element, I think it directs our attention into that kind of understudy thing is, you know, do we value, and I, hell, I did it, heck, I did it earlier and said actual wounds. No, these are actual wounds. 
how do we value those things? And at that time, at least in his mind, because I don't think he could accept weakness in himself, and he was tired at this point, folks. You know, I mean, we think general officers don't get tired. They do, right? Um, that recognizing or accepting weakness in others, perhaps. I'm going to play amateur psychologist. I'm not a historian right now. Maybe that says more about Patton and where he was at that time than it does, you know, the casualty. Either way, I, uh, I, I think it also says about the relative value, maybe even in our military today, we assess wounds we can't see with wounds that are, that are obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so the, the two kind of, as I said, the infamous casualties, the Mussolini in, in Italy um, and then Patton, at least temporarily. Yeah. Of course, he's back on, on command duty later. Um, what, what should we take away from this Sicily campaign? Uh, aside from, as you mentioned, kind of this, this coalition warfighting aspect. Yeah, and, and there I won't poke to the ones you can read in, you know, any of the, the major and, 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 and good book, books on this. Um, you know, the, the first thing I would point to, and, you know, I'll refer back to my, you know, my staff college experience teaching military professionals that I ask is, you know, reflect on how we define victory, right? So, you know, they read this and they're all on board because, uh, the, you know, the historians often convince them, yeah, we could have done more. What does that say about us? You know, how much is good enough? Why is it? And I maybe it says something about Americans. You mentioned it earlier, the college mm -hmm. football fan. You know, who, who, yeah, we won 20 to 17. Man, I wanted to win by more. Got to impress the judges. Yeah, it, it says something fundamentally about what victory is and how we, how, how we de define it. The second thing I'd say is this. I, I, I think, you know, one of the things to reflect on rather than lessons learned, that's kind of a loaded term. And we use it, I use it, but I prefer not to here, is to reflect upon um, is um, the significance of coalition warfare. And um, not just its significance, that's kind of a PAP thing. Um, how difficult it is um, for Americans today, especially, because you know, generally, if there's any reaction to one of my dear friends who's English and married an American and lives here, you know, we love British people. Or it doesn't even have to be British people. It can be, you know, our, we, we, we love them. Back then, there was a lot of Anglophobia. We like French folks better than we like. And we, we forget that. And yet we overcame Anglophobia. The British got over there, and I, I'm going to make fun of them now. They're pretense. Mm -hmm. We're just going to tell them how to do. And if we can get them to do what we want, we can make use of this new American army that isn't as good as we think it uh, as good as us. And I, I think, you know, for me, that's it. And what we cement there is a way ahead. On the German and Italian side, we see an example of how a coalition breaks apart, largely because of the way the Germans don't or, or practice coalition warfare, which becomes increasingly dictatorial. For our, for our side, the side of right and light, right? Despite conflicts, personality conflicts, great men behaving badly, we made it work. We emerge from Sicily with the coalition being stronger. That, more than portion of a German corps getting off the island, is a victory in it. And they did name it that. I'd say it's an unstated, you know, objective at the beginning of the campaign. And gang, here's the thing. Contingency, if it's been a thing for us, is here. It could have turned out differently. 
let's not um, let's not underappreciate something because it happened and it should have happened. Many things that should have happened don't happen. It, it there we cement this partnership which continues to today, mm -hmm. um, and we do it at a time when we weren't the lead partners. The British learn that we are going to become a bigger partner. And for them, that's difficult. And we, we find a way to... And by the way, the French are there too. Although De Gaulle is not on the island. Yep. Thankfully. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll leave it with that. It's probably fair at that yeah. point. Yeah. All right, Dr. Hospital, it's been a fascinating talk. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.